Hi friends, it's Jerry Swigert, Executive Director of Global Immersion. This is the first of a special series of conversations we're doing on Instagram that we're calling a virtual immersion into the Israel-Gaza war. These are live conversations with Israeli and Palestinian friends and partners, the peacemakers who are embedded within the trenches of this war. For the past 12 years, Global Immersion has been partnering with them to move the needle on a just and lasting peace in the region. And they're saying to us the same thing today that they've been saying for years. Amplify our voices, our perspectives, our stories, our invitations, and our challenges. These Instagram Live conversations have been so powerful, and many of you have been asking for access to them here. And so that's what we're going to do. We're going to offer lightly edited versions of those conversations here as special episodes. In the days and weeks to come, the virtual immersion is going to continue over on our Instagram channel. We invite you to tune into those conversations live. And if you can't make it, then tune into them here. I hope you enjoy and benefit from this first conversation with Reverend Dr. Munther Isaac, one of the most prolific Palestinian Christian voices on the planet. So, I'm really excited to welcome Munther to the conversation, my friend. Thank you, Joe. Yeah, for having me. Yeah, I've yeah, never yeah. done this, so I hope I'm getting that. You, you know, I, you know, I, I mean, <laughs> the uh, the IG live reality. I feel like my learning curve is very high as well. But the good news is we're both here face to face. So, our hope here, friends who are listening in, is to oscillate between Palestinian and Israeli voices and perspectives and I'm really humbled in this moment to start our virtual immersion with you, Munther. And you are a voice and a leader and a peacemaker who has shaped my perspective probably more than anyone else. And for those of you who are maybe just becoming acquainted with Munther right now, Reverend Dr. Munther Isaac is a pastor at Christmas Lutheran in Bethlehem. He's the dean at Bethlehem Bible College. He's the director of the Christ at the Checkpoint conferences, um, author uh, of uh, most recently, The Other Side of the Wall. Uh, but Hunter, one of the things that I've been most moved by as I've read you from afar and as I've watched your humble leadership is that the things that you're expressing and the invitations that you're offering are not coming out of you know, a place of esoteric theory and idealism and optimism. It's coming from a deeply embodied and embedded followership of Jesus. It's coming from the places of, of occupation, of oppression, of the abuse of power. And I think that you for years have been calling us all to the hopeful alternative to a weaponized religion and cycles of violence perpetuated by, by I think, a slanted understanding of Christianity. I remember listening to you in 2021 in the kind of the spike of the violence back then say, here we go again. And, and then I think either before or shortly after you offered an open letter that we'll link that in the comment thread here. And I just want to say to you, I, I just reread that this morning and I, I am overwhelmed with sorrow that not enough of us listened then. And, um, and, and am in this moment, recognizing that the pores of the souls of many evangelicals, I think I have opened a bit more and I agree with the fact that it's taken this level of horror in order for that to happen. And, and so I'm sorry, and I'm humbled that you would continue to contend in this way, use your voice, bring us into a deeper understanding. So 
thank you for meeting with us here now. And I'm just wondering with their first and foremost, for those of us who are just growing familiar, talk to us a little bit about you and some of your work. And then I want to just start with the hope that sustains you right now and maybe the ache that propels you forward. And then let's talk about what's happening in real time right now. So let's just start with you, my friend. Yeah, thank you, Jared. I'm by the introduction. I am someone who seeks to follow Jesus in this crazy world we live in. And and in these difficult, difficult times, I'm someone who's trying just to sustain his faith in a good and just God. I'm, as you mentioned, a pastor and a theologian. I pastor actually two churches here in, in Palestine, in the West Bank, one in Bethlehem, Christmas Lutheran, and one in Beit Shul. And at the same time, um, part of the other hat I wear is that of uh, studying, researching, writing, and teaching at uh, at Bethlehem uh, at Bethlehem Bible College. Um, and uh, as you said, uh, part of what we do is try to speak out about the realities in the crowd. For the at at least for one of the main reasons is because the Bible, as you said, has been weaponized against us. Our Bible has been weaponized against us. So we found ourselves having to spend a lot of our energy and resources reaching out to our fellow sisters and brothers and say, first of all, I mean, if you don't want to help us, at least don't make it worse for us. And even as I speak in this very, very difficult day, you know, it's, it's hard enough what we're going through. And what we're going through here in Bethlehem, the fear, the anxiety, the brokenness of watching what's happening in Gaza day, hour after hour, is nothing compared to what is happening actually in Gaza, to the horror they are living in. We're, we're literally receiving, listening to stories of horror when we call our friends in Gaza. But to me here, you know, it, it, it's actually becoming worse for us when we read what our and our fellow evangelicals are writing and saying and doing and what is being done in the name of the Bible to, you know, we're seeing people justify a genocide. Uh, I'm putting it in very clear words so that you understand the level of shock we are at this town. We're watching uh, images of death on an hourly, you know, uh, every day, every minute. And then we see people uh justifying that, church people justifying that, and it makes us angry. It really, really makes us, uh, makes us angry. Um, you mentioned something that, you know, you've read the open letter and that I've written in 2021 and we did not listen. I was speaking to a friend uh, just a week ago and I said, who brings always pastors to meet us in Bethlehem? And I asked him, how many times have I said in the last 15 years, things are about to explode? Yeah. The current status quo is not sustainable. Sadly and tragically, we've seen this coming. But to be honest, I could have never imagined the level of atrocities and horror and violence and death and killing that we're seeing and witnessing right now. And it's ongoing. It's not as if it stopped. It's ongoing. And no one's talking about the ceasefire. In fact, people are against the ceasefire. It it, it blows my mind. It makes us again so angry because... We have friends there, we're seeing, you know, images of children being pulled out from under the rubbles and we're asking, where is the conscience of the world? So, yeah, you've asked many questions on that transition I'm writing now. 
Let me warn you in advance. You talked about hope. I don't see any hope, please. I mean, we are in a state of brokenness. And in the midst of this, for me personally, um, you know, we're searching for God. Where, where is God from all of this? Especially as, as I said, we see one child being pulled out of the rubble after the other as we talk to a friend, listen to these horror stories, and we're questioning when will this, when will this stop? I, in your open letter from 2021, which, and, and then of course there, there's another letter that, that you and your colleagues have penned that we'll put the link on. It's, it's another open letter to Western evangelicals. And, and I urge those of us who are, who are listening into this, we have got to read these. We have to take heart in the, in your open letter in 2021, Luther, you offer the common sentiment, pray for the peace of Jerusalem and then critique in many ways. The notion that prayer is enough. And here you are two years later saying, I don't know if I have hope. And so talk to us a little bit, my friend, the, the, the thoughts and prayers of the people are clearly insufficient. Uh, and, and you also say in that letter that you're a praying person, as am I. It's like not to downgrade the importance of prayer, but I feel like you for 15 years have been calling us to also become the answer to our prayers. And so I wonder, offer a little bit more commentary, if you would, around the insufficiency of prayer and good thoughts and sending energy in the direction. There's something far more dire that's happening right now that prayers are not stopping. Talk to us a little bit about that. And if not pray, then what? Yeah, sadly, you know, I was thinking as you were talking, how many open letters do we need to write? No. How many calls, how many conferences do we need to make? And to me right now, I'm thinking this is the least I could do. We're stuck here in Bethlehem. We cannot go anywhere. We cannot do anything. We're under a very strict siege here in Bethlehem. And yes, you're right. We've been praying. We've been praying for peace. We've been praying for justice. Right now, actually, to be honest, I'm not praying for peace. I'm praying for the end of this aggression, the end of this war. Yeah. As I said last Sunday in, in, in our church, you know, because everyone is there, people are, you know, asking questions. And I said, I don't want to hear about peace. Uh, the, the, the immediate thing that people in Gaza need is as simple as a night in which there is no bombing where they have to sleep. And I mean, we need this to end before even beginning to talk about this romantic view of peace and coexistence and, and yes. reconciliation. The, the thing I've been talking about is that I have issue with how many Christians think of the word peace. Mm. We pray for peace as if you know, we love both sides. We're neutral. We're diplomatic. We don't take sides and the church should just have sympathy, mm -hmm. give charity and more. And to me, this is a twisted logic. This is a twisted definition of peace. Mm -hmm. This is not what uh, I believe at least Jesus was advocating. Peace is something we seek after. Peacemaking means listening to both sides, definitely, and, and uh, having empathy with both sides. But it also means taking sides with the truth. Uh, it means speaking truth to power. Uh, this idea of neutrality is so problematic to me. You see, we're sitting here on the one hand, we have many Christian Zionists who are uh, advocating for Israel's right to defend itself. This is Israel's land. It's okay. We don't need ceasefire. And, you know, even worse, many, many, you know, dehumanizing of Palestinians. And at the other hand, we have church leaders who are not even willing to condemn obvious war crimes and not take sides by 
saying we have to stay uh, as if as, as if neutral. Um, and the way we pray, Jer, should de- de- it, it defines how we act. Uh, if we're simply praying for, you know, this, as I said, romanticized vision in which, uh, you know, we imagine two sides in conflict and we want them to come and, and hug and, and reconcile. I think, again, we, we're not getting this. Mm-hmm. Uh, the open letter we've penned, especially the last one, uh, last week ago, wanted to put things in context. Yeah. And to emphasize that, uh, the Palestinian people have been going under severe injustice for 75 years. And please understand something. And, and this is for everyone listening. When we try to put things in context, we're not justifying. We're explaining. You know, I get offended when people ask us as Palestinian Christians and theologians, do you condemn, do you just, you know, do you think a pastor would say, yes, I support the killing of children and our problem with the double standard, our problem is with the dehumanizing of Palestinians. And no, no one cares now. Everyone went crazy, you know, uh, and, you know, wanted sympathy and support to Israel. But now people are being slaughtered in Gaza and no one's talking about it and people are justifying it. What we're saying is, Look at the bigger picture, 75 years of ongoing injustice. And to, to help people, what's really missing in the conversation today is that the people who are being bombed right now in Gaza, those who are besieged, are the descendants of many uh, of, of refugees from 1948. Yeah. The core issue had not been addressed. So can you imagine this generational trauma, this generational injustice? And then we blame them and, and try to cast them as the problem. Uh, do these people who've been ethnically cleansed will be kicked out of their homes? Uh, Israel was built on the ruins of their villages. Do they have the right to live in peace in their land? Do they have the right, you know, to, to say and, and, and sorry to put it, to, to defend themselves, you know? But as if we have, we, we hold certain rights exclusive to certain people because we've demonized the Palestinians for many years. Mm-hmm. And I've seen this, I've written about it, how there is a systematic dehumanizing, even demonizing of, of the Palestinians. So before you talk about peace, try to understand the context, try to understand what's been happening to the Palestinians for the last 75 years of continuous displacement, continuous denials of the rights. And even when it comes to us as Palestinian Christians, we are facing literally existential crisis. Um, one of my, you know, my biggest fears right now, our biggest fears, uh, is that the Christian presence in Gaza would come to an end after this war. Because mm. who would want to stay in Gaza mm. after this? Does the world really care about sustaining the Christian presence in one of the oldest Christian communities in the world? Mm-hmm. Uh, that is Council. Which, which in right now, the latest stat is less than 2% of the entire population is Christian, or has that changed? It's, it's almost 1% of the, of the Palestinian community in the West Bank, East Jerusalem, and Gaza. In Gaza, we're talking about less than 1,000. 20 of them were killed already, yes. 17, and the bombing of the Orthodox Church, right. tragically. And all of them right now are hiding, taking refuge mm-hmm. in either the Orthodox Church and or in the Catholic Church. But as we have come to realize, no place is safe mm-hmm. in Gaza. No, no mm-hmm. place is safe. Yeah, yeah, clearly. I, I wonder, and I, I'm just, with humility, Munther, like, I'm going to ask you to, I'm going to ask you to contend again for Western evangelicals. And, um, because I think that as I understand you, it's, it's a part of your calling <laughs> and, um, it's the voice that I think and the anointing that God has given you, um, 
And I, I just lament that your sentiment of how many open letters um, need to be written. And I, I join you in the question. I, I, I'm also, I, you know, in our back and forth, even before this, I, I know that you and I both have serious issues with the ways in which evangelical influencers in the West are reflecting on this, most notably, I think, omitting context altogether. And I would argue omitting Jesus from the entire conversation. I think that what we're seeing over here is that a commitment to ideology that's rooted in a particular theology is, has caused for years, but I think we see it right now is generating a, an absolute disregard for the humanity of others, much less the pursuit of justice, not to mention a ceasefire. And so, Help us understand, Munter, because you are so well equipped and I think searing like a laser in terms of helping us as evangelicals, Western evangelicals, understand the theology that causes us to not just remain indifferent to this particular issue, but to endorse what is happening in Gaza as a part of some kind of divine master plan that is probably we, we misunderstand as advantageous to us. It's self-serving. So talk to us from, a, from your perspective around Western and, and specifically American evangelicalism and the role that it's playing in the catastrophe that's rolling out before us. Yeah, Jack, to be honest, it's a calling I wish I didn't have. I know. And it's, uh, as you say, it's taxing, it's frustrating. We're really tired trying to explain the context and trying to explain the reality, trying to explain the simple fact that the moment you say God gave the land to the Jewish people as an eternal possession, which is an assumption in most evangelical circles, uh, you know, what you're missing is that the land is not empty. The land has people. You know, I'm not even, you know, let alone questioning the whole idea that, you know, of, of that biblical principle. We've written and challenged that biblical principle, but just for the sake of argument, okay, if this is your belief, you know, what do we do? Yeah. And you see, what happens is that we now immediately turn into the enemy. Mm -hmm. This myth, I call it, of an empty land. And even, you know, good, you know, heart evangelicals, and I'm not talking about the hardcore Zion, Christian Zionists, you know, near a, a default evangelical would respond positively to the statement that Jews return to their land and it's part of God's plan. The idea of Jews returning makes the Palestinians who've been living in these homes and communities for hundreds, if not thousands of years, as if we took someone else's land. And you see, th these uh, beliefs are done from distance. They serve a certain eschatological and other theological paradigms um, without having real consideration about the impacts on the ground. And these are not simple beliefs because they're coupled with political advocacy and financial support to Israel. And I've written a lot and I've given multiple examples on how this theology has led to the dehumanizing of Palestinians, including Palestinian Christians. Mm -hmm. Because the moment you say God takes sides with a certain group, then everyone else is opposing God if we're yeah. not siding with that group. And definitely, you know, I don't find a tribal God in the Bible. I didn't see a tribal God in Jesus. I, I won't believe that my faith was determined 
thousands of years ago, or that this conflict is solved by how we interpret a certain promise thousands of years ago to a certain person and to who we perceive as the descendants of that individual. Talking, of course, about Abraham. And, and again, Jared, I haven't gone into the exegesis. I haven't, you know, argued against that theology, the simple fact that in Galatians, you know, in Christ, you are Abraham's offspring, as according yes. to the prior, you know, I'm not even there. I'm just questioning the premise. I mean, you mentioned how this theology had been used to justify the current war on Gaza. I mean, even before that, and please bear with me because I want people to understand this. Mm-hmm. European Jewish settlers came to Palestine, colonized Palestine, uh, destroyed thousand villages, caused the massive crisis of 800,000 Palestinian refugees. And this was justified as an act of God and fulfilling prophecies, God's faithfulness to the Jewish peoples. It's the only colonization that used the Bible to justify these acts of of, of terror. This is the actual cause of that. I, I, keep, I keep going back to what happened in 1948, and I keep reminding people that theology was an integral part That's right. in, that, yeah. in that action. Even within the British mandate, the Balfour Project, which promised Palestine as a home for the Jewish people. You know, England had no right to do that. They were our colonizers, yet they did this. And again, uh, Belfort himself was motivated by theological and faith sentiments about what he believes God was, God's plan was for restoring the Jewish people. I can go on and on. And as I said, the total disregard to human lives, to Palestinians, to Palestinian Christians in the theology of Christian Zionism is appalling to us. And it's adding to our brokenness and misery these days. Mm-hmm. I, I think one of the things I'm, I'm paying attention to right now, and, and I've been, I mean, I've been a deep student of this crisis for 12 years, which is a breath in the midst of a 75 year catastrophe. But one of the things I'm, I've been paying attention to over that time, but specifically right now is, is this this notion of a God who plays favorites, a God who has exclusive favor or affection toward a particular bloodline over against another. I think that's a reality. I think eschatology or this end times thing, and this is where I'm finding here in the West. I want you to, I want you to play with these thoughts with me and help us actually understand to, to spur on our urgency toward action month or that this, this notion that we in some ways as American evangelicals can expedite the return of Jesus here you know so it's it's god has a has shows favoritism has a distinct affection for a bloodline that's a theological problem there's an end times theology that we think that uh that we can help expedite the return of jesus which would create a, a global catastrophe as though god is honored by our violence and then i think there's a third theological i don't know pillar that undergirds American evangelicalism that, that says God actually endorses the use of violence to accomplish God's means. So I, I think these three things are, these three pillars, if you will, create a, a theological foundation that for many evangelicals, we, we look at what's happening right now and we're like, look, all of the things are coming true the great Armageddon, like the battle. This is the most, like, we're excited about this because Jesus is coming back. And then on the other hand, I think many of us, and I think it's a growing number within American evangelicalism, 
are growing more and more suspicious, if not cynical, of the religion that we've inherited because we're recognizing it's a religion that promotes domination rather than restoration and are beginning to ask really critical questions about a God who endorses violence. And I think that's really rooted in like a Joshua 6 conquest of Jericho. And we equate that moment to like even what's happening right now, that God fully endorses the use of violence, of ethnic cleansing, of genocide in order to accomplish God's means on behalf of his favored bloodline or preferred bloodline or or whatever it is. I think there's a growing number of us that that are saying, we have to actually break agreement with a theology and a religion that promotes domination. We have serious questions about a God who endorses violence because we simply don't see that in Jesus and, and are therefore in this place where we're watching with dissonance because we've been socialized into dominance, but we're now moving to a place where it's like, we have got to put our bodies on the line to actually be about the ceasefire and a just and lasting peace, but we're not necessarily sure how to take this journey, you know? And so help us Munther, from your perspective, the way that you've done work on these three things, especially this God who promotes violence, take that to task for us because we actually need that undone inside of us if we're going to actually be able to bring our full weight to the table to participate in repair. Yeah, there's a lot to unpack, really a lot to unpack. The, the theology you described, which I, I, I you know, I am fully aware of and we studied and tragically, uh, you know, seen its results. I would say this brand of Christian Zionism is bad theology for everyone involved, including uh, Jews and Israeli Jews. This theology, which stems, in my opinion, from a sense of arrogance and self-righteousness and superiority in that we are better, we know what will happen, we're always on the right side. Um, embedded in everything you described is this notion of us versus them, with us being the superior, the righteous, right? Them being the uncivilized, those who need, dare I say, even mission work, those who need ours, you know, us educating them or the enemies, the terrorists. Part of it, you see the dehumanizing of Palestinians that I speak for, it, it, it definitely serves that because once you dehumanize people, it, it becomes perfectly fine to, 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 you know, have violence against them. Mm-hmm. You know, one of the things uh, Israeli leaders did before the attack on Gaza is call all Palestinians in Gaza animals mm-hmm. because once that happens, it becomes perfectly fine and justifiable exercise violence and then even related to God. I I was reading this morning how uh, uh, American congressmen, you know, they were interviewed and say, yes, we have to bless Israel so that God will bless us. You know, you you question the motivation behind supporting Israel. You want to be blessed by God. Mm -hmm. You want to gain favor with God. You want to be on the triumphant side, if you wish. And I would say a lot of these policies are actually bad for Israel, you know, Many evangelicals have been bad friends to Israel by not pushing Israel to respect the international law and implement it and have peace with the Palestinians. Because, you know, where do you get the idea that oppressing and suffocating the lives of six million Palestinians or more within the Palestinian territories or within uh, historic Palestine, Israel, Palestine would actually create peace? Uh, and no one was willing to challenge Israel's settlement policies and so on motivated by these uh, by these beliefs 
And you mentioned that many people think that we're hastening or the second coming of Christ. Um, may I remind you that in many scenarios of, of this Christian Linus, um, before Christ returns, two-thirds of the Jews will be massacred. <laughs> and the challenge is that they call us anti-Semitic. And I've heard prominent evangelical pastors teach this. And no one <laughs> questions them. Why? Because they give political and financial support to Israel. Imagine if I say, you know, I predict the day in which two-thirds of the Jews will be killed. I will be enabled anti-Semitic right. immediately. And do you know what happens to the other third? They convert to Christianity. Right. And somehow we believe this is good theology for the Jewish people. You know, what did we do to the command to love our neighbors as ourselves, right. rather than making Jews as subjects in our eschatology? So I think you will be delusional if you think that this is good theology for uh, for Israel. And then, you know, go to the issue of, of, of violence. I, do, I don't recognize this God. Um, uh, in fact, let's, let's look at the Bible. Let's look at Jesus. Yeah. Where is Jesus in this equation of violence? He is the victim of violence. Jesus was crucified on the cross. You, you have to understand for us, all of these questions are very real and existential. This is not a theological exercise or academic exercise. The question, where is God in the midst of this? Uh, last Sunday was one of the most difficult sermons I had to preach because on the one hand, you know, we've been praying. We prayed a, a, a day and two before for the safety of our sisters and brothers in the churches in Gaza. Uh, and then on Saturday, uh, uh, they were bombed and, and, or on Friday. And we've lost friends in, in one of my congregations in Beit Sahur, one of the members, her sister was killed in that attack. So imagine the sadness, the brokenness that I had. And the question is, is where is God? And, you know, to me, the answer I gave is God is under the rubbish. Yeah. God wants to be a victim of this violence and dark, dark moment in our, in our history. And, so when you talk about violence, I look at Jesus himself as a victim of that violence, a victim of an empire that exercised violence and that used also religion together, you know, religion and, and politics, if you wish, had to come together to crucify Jesus. This is an aspect. Violence is a tool of the empire. And tragically, I would say a lot of our evangelical sisters and brothers have taken sides with the empire. I've written a lot about the triumphalism in evangelical Christianity, you know, wanting to spread and dominate. You're right. And sometimes in that mentality, we forget that Jesus's way is that of sacrificial love. And this idea that violence is part of God's plan, you know, it, 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 to me, it breaks my heart to see Christianity, as I said, on the side of empire. Jesus told us the exact opposite, you know, the meek shall inherit the land. We have to remind ourselves of this. The meek, not the powerful, not the dominant, not the rich, not the ones with the most sophisticated weapons. Uh, it's the meek who inherit the land. Uh, and we will see this because at the end of the day, we're here. The Palestinians were here. We've endured so much. We, we stayed because, you know, we have no one else to go. It's the meek. It's the merciful who inherit the land. It's those who are thirsty for justice, for righteousness. We have to rediscover Jesus in our Christianity today. And that's why, it's, you know, you know, 
I, I can't understand how so many Christians just, you know, try to be neutral or, as I said, justify this. Yeah. Uh, where is yeah. God in the Speak more to the question. Speak, if you will, to the, to the danger of neutrality. Because I think you keep this really beautifully in the open letter. I think it's a message that, that leads to be, that he, like, peacemakers are pro-human, but we are not neutral. And so can, can you speak to that? Yeah, uh, it, it, it's as simple as this. Uh, many times, I think, in, we think that God does not take sides. Does God take sides? I ask this question many times. And, and many people, they think, yeah, no, God is a general, both sides and, and so on. But I think the Bible is clear. God takes sides with the oppressed, with the poor, with the marginalized, with the widow, with the orphan. It's, it's there in our Bible. Jesus is found in the ones who are thirsty. You know, if you do this to one of these that we've done to me, to the ones who are hungry, to the ones who are refugees, to the ones who are naked, to the ones even who are in prison. Uh, this is where we encounter. So the notion that, you know, neutrality is part of our Christian spirituality, I think it's problematic. It's what my South African friends, and this is a term I've learned from them called toothless Christianity. Truth and boyless Christianity. We've seen so much toothless Christianity this last week. You know, we say things, but we, we really don't make any, you know, mm. we, we, we bite, but we don't hurt. Mm. You know, we, we're lamenting the death. We're, you know, we're sorry. No, you have to call things by their name. You have to challenge evil. You have to call things by their name. And I've learned this diplomatic Christianity and I've been frustrated in the last year or so because we've been pushing churches to acknowledge that right now Israel is committing apartheid against uh, the Palestinians, is implementing a system. This is a big, a big discussion. I know, but we've said this many years ago. But given that there are so many human rights reports and human rights held it's become, again, one of those words we don't want to hear about here in Palestine because it, it's proving to be worthless. But so many human rights organizations, so many legal uh, studies have concluded this is clearly an apartheid system right now that we have. And churches are telling us this is strong language, this is not helpful, they're not building bridges. You know, I'm not about building bridges first. We're about speaking truth and calling things by name. And, and one of the things that I've been saying recently is if there are two people fighting, you definitely want to come in the middle, push both sides and say, Hey guys, stop fighting. Let's talk. Yeah. Okay. I get this. But if you have one person literally stepping on the throat of the other and has been doing this for years, and then you come to the one who's being uh, oppressed and say, lecture him about peace, that's when it becomes problematic. And that's why I'm saying more recently, I don't want to hear about peace. Let's stop the oppression before we talk about what's next. Uh, listen, definitely, we want to share this line. We want to live in peace here. But before we can even fathom thinking about a time in which we live in peace, we have to end this systematic injustice and this right now and as I speak, uh, this very brutal war that is happening, uh, that is happening in Gaza. So this is again, I, I, you know, I, I wish people get beyond this, like, if peacemaking idea in yeah. which we don't take sides, we pray for both sides yeah. and understand that at the heart of peacemaking is this idea of taking sides and speaking truth power. Yeah. yeah. Speaking. Yeah, that's right. I mean, I, I, in our work, 
as we're training peacemakers, we, we often reflect on the notion that peacemaking requires disturbance, it, it, the, the disruption of the status quo. Uh, and, and this is what I hear you inviting us into. This is what I think I see in Jesus is that he disrupt, he disrupted any and every system that sought to diminish the image of God in another. And so that actually looks like us moving beyond thoughts and prayers and education. And it, it, it probably demands our transformation to the point at which we're willing to live in such a way that our lives actually reflect the shadow of the cross, putting our bodies on the line, risking reputation, uh, breaking agreement with image management in order to speak truth to power and change to society here. And a couple last questions, Munter. Um, so grateful for you and your time here with us. I, right now, I think we're watching the political games unfold in, in very real and very profound ways. Most recently, we're watching, I think, the carelessness of Joe Biden's words as he's associating blame to the bombing of the hospital, as he's now calling into question humanitarian organizations' numbers with regard to deaths in Gaza. The way that, that we're interpreting this is that um, Biden's administration sees this as an opportunity to, to score points with evangelicals because historically speaking, evangelicals have power and it's impossible not to be uh, intimate with, with uh, Israel and be the president of the United States. I think we saw the previous administration and Trump and the decisions that he made in moving the embassy from Tel Aviv to Jerusalem with all about scoring points with evangelicals. How are you seeing this, number one? And I guess the reason I'm raising this to, to our collective attention is in terms of what do we do, we as evangelicals have been organized and socialized into a power system to maintain a status quo with regard to the, the crisis in Israel and Palestine. We have to show up as followers of Jesus in democracy, within the context of democracy here, in a very different way right now. And I wonder, how are you experiencing this and interpreting it? And what's the call to action that you would give to evangelicals? Absolutely transform and let's undo some theology and remake some, some new stuff. But there's an urgency right now around how we follow Jesus within the context of democracy. What would you say to us, Nunther? Yeah. Yeah, it's, it's really disheartening listening to Joe Biden recently. And, uh, you know, one of the myths many people have is that, um, support to Israel is, uh, you know, one-sided in, in, in America, but clearly it's bipartisan, you know, both, you know, both Republicans and Democrats have this, even though, by the way, the people are not entirely there. And I think it's time, I think it's time people speak strongly to their politicians, to their, to their representatives. A quick comment about Biden's questioning the numbers of Palestinians being killed. I mean, this is part of the colonial oriental approach in which we're always questioned. We're always, you know, everything is taken with suspicion, but of course, everything that Israel sends is taken and accepted and no one questions it, even though Israel has a strong track record of lying and distorting facts, uh, as proven most recently in the tragic killing of Palestinian Christian journalist Shireen Abu Hakla, they denied it, they denied it, they denied it, and then every report showed they did it, and then they admitted that they did it. 
and of course no one was held accountable um to me and i'm gonna use a strong word you know his last comments questioning the number the racist you know as if you know palestinians always exaggerate the numbers they don't tell the truth it's part of the dehumanizing of the palestinians let alone you know undermining our our real our real suffering it it adds to to the anger maybe you're right that part of it is catering to the evangelical community and that's why our last letter used words like repentance yeah. uh you know used words like you're complicit we're holding you accountable and no one can now say we didn't know no you 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 took a conscious decision this is you know sadly and and i said this recently to uh, a german church leader when we were having a discussion on whether this is apartheid or not they, they were saying it's not helpful we're not gonna burn bridges uh, let's talk use other language and i said mark my words in 20 years it would be apologizing to us for not using that term when it will be too late mm-hmm. uh, as is the case in many other scenarios and situations uh, and that's why you know uh when i am really angry and when i'm really frustrated uh from the western church i immediately go to our south african friends or indian yeah. friends or i find comfort yeah. there and they tell us well they will they will all come repenting and saying yeah yeah will. but you know many times i say don't claim we did not know uh no you and you I think there needs to be a lot of soul searching. I think the credibility of the gospel is at stake here. Uh, when you defend war crimes, uh, in the name of the Bible, there's something tragically, tragically wrong. But for those of us who are getting it, uh, I, one of the things you mentioned is risking reputation. In Palestine, we talk about costly solidarity, mm. costly solidarity with our, uh, with, with, with those of us here who are still resilient to stay and to keep the message and to keep the witness. The Palestinian people are known for their resilience. Sumud in Arabic, we say. Uh, we've been through a lot, but we've always survived. Uh, the Palestinian church as well. We are determined. I feel this is home. I don't want to go anywhere. I, I, you know, and I will be lying if I tell you that this idea didn't cross my mind in a very serious way in the last week or two. Yeah. Uh, but what we're asking you, what we're asking those who want to hear and accept this message is this is a time for cost of solidarity. This is a time to really speak truth and challenge your pastor, your friends, your representatives. We need people to speak out. And the immediate thing we need to people to speak out is to end this war, to have a ceasefire, to, to, to find a, to find a normal way to talk to the Palestinians. Uh, you cannot continue this, you know. How do you imagine that this will bring peace? It's beyond my imagination. Uh, I'm so concerned about what's next. I'm really so concerned. Here, even here in Bethlehem, we're very, very anxious. We're very afraid, to be honest. What will the ground invasion result in? Will this war move to the West Bank as well? And and at the same time, we're really tired of seeing images of death. Yeah. We're tired of this. We're angry. And we need people to speak out loudly that this must end. This must end. Mm-hmm. And I've used my words carefully, cost of solidarity, because I know right now it's not popular to speak for the, 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 the rights of Palestinians. It's not popular even to sympathize with Palestinians. 
And I was on a Zoom call with a prominent evangelical leader who told me I can't get my folks to call for a ceasefire. But it's precisely because of this that you need to speak out. You need to challenge this line of thinking that is so catastrophic, that is so unchristlike, that is so anti-gospel in my opinion. Mm -hmm. And it's the credibility of our Christian witness that is at stake. This is not a time for soft diplomacy. Yeah. And no, no, we need to act on our yeah. Uh, on what we have. Yeah. At bare minimum, at bare minimum, this, for those of us who have never called our congressperson, it's that. At bare minimum, it's we have to mount phone lines in DC. There's a, there's an open letter that Munther and his colleagues drafted that was posted on change.org. We'll put that comment or in the comment section, that link in the comment section. It's looking for 15,000 signature, uh, signatures. And this, as of this morning, it was only at like 11,000. Like that should be an, an easy way for us to take an action. Uh, I know it doesn't feel like a whole bunch, but we, we, that there should be hundreds of thousands of signatures. Um, many of us evangelicals, um, who believe that a ceasefire is, is necessary, is critical. Uh, these are some of the things that, that we can do. There's one question that I just saw pop up in the comment thread by Kendra Munter. As you're talking with evangelical leaders, especially in the West who are, they know what's at stake if they speak up and speak out about this. And so how have you talked to them in a way that's actually pushed them to a place where they begin to break agreement with job security in order to actually follow Jesus in this regard? Jesus never promised us comfort. Jesus clearly said, if you want to follow me, you have to deny yourself. We have to, you know, I, I, I really want to challenge this notion of a comfortable Christianity where the moment you become Christian, all your problems are solved and you're blessed, you're comfortable, everything, you know, your world is turned upside down. And many times I, when I speak to young people, there's a talk I always give that I call words I wish Jesus never said, because it's so hard to follow Jesus especially in, in context of polarization, hatred, and dehumanization. We need courageous followers of Christ right now because I keep mentioning this. It's the credibility of our gospel witness yeah. that is at stake. My fear is that once this is over and we look under the rubbles and we discover the actual horror of it and we're seeing images there are many reporters and many journalists in Gaza is that people will be horrified. Where were you? What will you say? What I want to say is that we need followers of Jesus who are willing to deny themselves, carry the cross and follow Jesus to where he takes us. And Jesus never promised to take us, to take us into comfort, and places where we are not a challenge. I, I use my words carefully, costly solidarity. Uh, and it, those who uh, read my work will know that uh, my favorite passage in scripture is the Sermon on the Mountain mm. uh, and the Beatitude. And how do the Beatitudes end? Uh, blessed are those who are persecuted for the sake of justice and righteousness. Yeah. Uh, I think it's as if, it's as if, I'm, I'm, you know, let me be a bit 
creative in my exegesis. It's as if Jesus is saying those who are merciful, those who weep, those who are pure in heart, the list might end up being persecuted for sticking to these principles. Are we willing to follow Jesus towards that? I want to remind you, you know, how I'm, I'm speaking to a friend in Gaza almost on a daily basis. He's in the church, he's in the Catholic church. And I asked, are you considering moving to the South as Israel said, you know, so that it's safer there? And, you know, his response, first of all, where will we go? Um, uh, and second, I'd rather die in the church rather than leave. I'd rather die uh, under this cross where he was talking rather than, uh, than, this is the kind of, you know, resilience people are putting in Palestine. Uh, and the least we accept is people to amplify and, and, and help us please get the ceasefire, uh, so that, you know, normality, whatever that is, is restored and, and we can begin that and talking about, uh, peace and, and, and justice, which looks so, so distant right now in this moment of darkness. Mm -hmm. Thank you for that. I, I'm, I'm, the Jesus that you speak of out there, I, I grieve how different that Jesus is from the Jesus that I was socialized into. And, and I, and I know that so many who are listening into this want so desperately to follow that Jesus. And friends, there's, in order to follow the Jesus that Munther talks about, we actually have to take a perilous pilgrimage of liberation from fidelity to the religion that we've been socialized into that promotes domination to the restorative revolution, what we've been invited into. And I think there are different constructions of Jesus that want to keep, woo us, seduce us into this easy comfort nonsense when the, the adventure that we've been invited into is one where we link arms in solidarity and we fight like peacemakers for the world that God's making. And um, thank you, Munther, for casting that vision. Um, friends, we're going we're gonna to continue to have these conversations. Um, we're going to oscillate between our friends and partners on the ground, peacemakers who are in the trenches in Israel and Palestine, Israeli and Palestinian, Christian, Jewish, Muslim across the board. We're going to bring in some perspectives from, from some of our U.S. American friends that can help us on this journey from fidelity to this, to domination, to participation, and restoration. So, so keep following along. We're, we're hoping to do this for the next several weeks to grow a more nuanced understanding and to move us from apathy to advocacy. There's steps that we can take, not only in our formation, but practically in this. And for those of you who are listening right now, would you just write a, a word? What, what has met, how has Munther's presence and his perspective met you right now? What's the gift that he's given? If you can reflect that back to him in the comment section, if not to read now, for him to return to in the days to come. I actually think that he needs to hear from we who are listening, but not just consuming this, we're allowing it to transform us into substantively different kinds of people. And so if you can express gratitude to him, not just thanks, but like what just happened to you as a result of this conversation, if there's something, a next step you feel compelled to take, what is it? Articulate it. I think we need our brother to see that we're not just passively consuming this, we're actually letting it transform us. Munther, last question for you. If you set aside pastor, the scholar, 
the the fierce advocate for global Christians to do better to follow the Jesus that you speak of, a Jesus who is the hopeful alternative to the, to the one that that I was socialized into. Um, how are you right now, and how is your family, and and how do we as a global community cheer you on and hold your arms up from afar? So honestly, right now, it doesn't matter how I am. Uh, what matters is the people in Gaza. That's, that's my main concern. We're concerned. I'm broken. Uh, I'm broken because I see images of death on a daily basis. And, and I refuse to stop watching, by the way. I was speaking to our students at the Bible college this morning. I said, you can't, you can't say we were tired of watching. Right. You have to be angry. You have to be moved. You have to be changed. You have to be moved to do something. So, as I said, here in Bethlehem, we're fine. We're under siege. We're reminded that the siege in Gaza could move to Bethlehem at any moment, just like it is in other Palestinian towns and areas. We cannot leave the Bethlehem area. Life has changed dramatically. We're concerned. We're bracing for long closures, meaning we bought food for a long time and so on. As a pastor, I'm, I'm struggling to find words of hopes and comfort to give my congregation and to give myself. It's hard to preach and say we've prayed and God did not listen, but this is what I said last time. And I had no answer to the people. I said, you know, we prayed for safety. It didn't happen for our sisters and brothers, but we will continue to pray. But as I said, what matters right now are the people of Gaza. Uh, Please hold them in your prayers. Please be moved to act and write and challenge people to bring an end to this. We can't afford more people dying. We can't afford to see, you know, right now we're talking about more than 2,000 children who've died. Uh, enough. We have to say uh, enough uh, to all of this. Uh, it's it's heartbreaking, and yeah, let's let's please continue to pray for, continue to persist in anger that this will end. Yes, yes. Thank you, my friend. I love you. With you, holding your arms up um, from here, and uh, may the contribution that you just made, the gift that you just offered, may it affect change. I believe in it. I believe that it is. And I'm committed to partnering with you until this comes to an end. Um, blessings to you, my friend. Thank, thank you. Thank you. Thank you. And continue to amplify what voices. Thank you. Take care, friends. The virtual immersion into the Israel-Gaza war continues on Global Immersion's Instagram channel, at Global Immerse. Follow us there and please share these conversations broadly if you agree that they need to be heard. Special thanks to our Embers community of monthly donors, investors in peace, who make the virtual immersion and this podcast possible. Learn more about the work of Global Immersion at globalimmerse.org.